G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. It's time for another Twista news special, and oh boy, there's a lot of news. A huge pivot by a new prime minister towards startups and innovation, a huge IPO from one of Australia's best-loved tech startups, a huge new fund from one of Australia's best-known venture firms, and huge issues still confronting diversity in tech. All the biggest news here on this new special episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Braintree, the easy all-in-one payment solution for your app or website, and Getworm, the place where startups and early adopters converge. Joining us for the Twist to News special... Scale Investors Managing Director, Laura McKenzie. Welcome back, Laura. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be back on the couch. And in a long overdue appearance, (laughs) Australia's snarkiest tech journalist, the one and only Stilgarian. Welcome, Stil. G'day, Mark. Stilgarian, we are going to need all of the snark because something has happened, something so weird and so unexpected. It's as if I woke up one morning and felt like I was living in invasion of the body snatchers, not this week in Startups Australia. It all began five weeks ago today with the decapitation strike that took down basically the entire front bench of the federal government. And let's begin with the leader. So in his challenge speech, four o'clock, Parliament House lawn, Malcolm Turnbull opened by articulating a new vision for Australia that was centered around innovation and opportunity. And he was using very modern, very startup-like words. He was using whole sentences. Let's be real here. That's the the key differentiator. (laughs) I I suppose that was the first bit of whiplash that struck Australians is that there were coherent thoughts, coherent sentences. He won that challenge. And, you know, at 11 o'clock that night, he fronts with Julie Bishop and he picks up using that same language. He keeps on going. And he's kept on going. And the entire national conversation has pivoted from a conversation about fear to a conversation that seems to be about opportunity. And last Friday, I'm sitting and watching Twitter in the mid-morning, and Malcolm Turnbull and Bill Shorten are trying to out-startup one another. You know, Malcolm Turnbull is fronting some big thing in Western Sydney, and Shorten is complaining about the lack of support for startups throughout Australia, and this week, apparently, Turnbull is going to be announcing a whole range of tech-friendly policies, and you can be sure that Labour is going to be right there with sweeteners of their own. I'm going to ask both of you, what the hell is going on here? Well, it is a super exciting time and on the gender diversity play, how cool is it that the people that are responsible for employment um, in the Treasury, Defence and the Foreign Office are all women. You know, Julie Bishop was in San Francisco last week. Uh, Kelly O'Dwyer is also the Minister for Small Business. And increasingly, we're seeing that divergence of language, finally, between small business and high growth technology startup, which I think is really important. And of course, Michaelia Cash, not only being the Minister for Women, but also the Minister for Employment. And we know that high growth technology startups are all around all about the jobs of the future. And in fact, I, I mean, I saw a photo this morning that was taken with Turnbull where they were doing, or 
I think it was Turnbull, where they were doing something about promoting startup tech startup jobs for women, right? It's fascinating because the entire language has shifted from, as you say, Mark, from fear to opportunity. But it's also a a whole change in perspective from the past to the future. And uh, there has been word coming out of Canberra that Tony Abbott, I mean, who we can pretty much sum up as a medieval Christian warrior, which is why I referred to him as Crusader Rabbit. Crusader (laughs) Abbott, you see, it's all very witty. But at the same time, he couldn't see anything outside the frame of being a righteous Western white man, you know, saving the world from evil forces. And we kept hearing about the death cult and the boats full of terrible people who had the audacity to flee an appalling situation to seek some better life for themselves. Good heavens! Whereas Malcolm Turnbull is saying... We can all seek a better life for ourselves. Let's let's go out and build it. And this and, and is also, both. But putting that in context, he's also saying Australia's in exactly the right place at exactly the right time to make matzah out of this moment, right? That that's part of the message that we seem to be hearing. Some of that's around startups and innovation. Some of that's just around getting off our butts and orienting ourselves to the opportunities that Asia is presenting us, right? Absolutely, and we have such a strong knowledge economy here. Um, I think in the startup world, everyone has to think global from day one because, quite frankly, a country of 23 million people is not big enough to grow uh, the next unicorn business. Whereas if you're thinking about... Is it though? Well, unless you're going to dominate the entire market. Of course, there are a few outliers, Seek, car sales, etc., but they really do own those markets here. And the ones you named there, Seek for employment, car sales for cars, that's something that virtually every family in Australia will want to take part in. So that's a, a sizable market. Uh, but I still keep thinking that, you know, that's also looking at the whole, it being business to consumer. We're selling to consumers, and that's why the world market is so attractive. And... One of the things I wanted to to kind of have a bit of a rant about, and I know that this is exactly why Mark's got me here, Mark. So do I kick off now or wait a wait a minute? Oh, go go for it. What we're hearing from Malcolm Turnbull is a very specific kind of future innovation opportunity dialogue. It's all about startups, and startups are only a particular type of new business. And I have been uh, getting a bit cranky about these things over the past couple of years. But innovation does not necessarily have to happen in a new business. Correct. And even if it does, the new business does not have to be a startup. I mean, nowhere else but in the tech field does someone say they have a startup. They just say, hey, I'm starting a new business. Oh, absolutely. And I think that really reflected the makeup of the room at the policy hackathon at the weekend where there were people from research, from industry, from government, from large businesses, from startups and from the investment community. And I think there's a widespread acknowledgement amongst all those parties that innovation has so many different guises. And and actually, um, someone showed a great piece of research which showed actually the most money in terms of GDP came from industries where there were the fewest startups. And so matching... Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, my God, Malcolm secretly wants us all to be poor. Oh, my so God, maybe the plan if we is start revealed. Ma- this is a zero-sum game, <laughs> yeah, I assume. Yeah. So maybe if we start matching um, the startup 
innovators with the agricultural industry right. and the defense industry and others where there's more dollars and opportunity we might see some quick wins. Well, I've, this is uh, this is all music to my ears because one of my fears about uh, the policy hack day, and I know that we're going to get into that in more detail, that it would be solely about startups. And the thing is, as this podcast has uh, explored on previous episodes, what was it, two episodes, Mark, you went to Perth, I think yeah, it was? Yeah, episode two. And then it's all about mining and agriculture. I mean, we yes. as we record this, it's only one day since Rio Tinto, one of the biggest mining companies in the world, announced that two of its mines in Western Australia, the ore trucks, they don't have any trucks with drivers anymore. Yeah. And None. they don't have it's any trains with drivers either, taking the ore from yeah. the trucks down to this the port. Is, this is Australian innovation, and you would hardly call Rio Tinto a kind of startup. Really? And that kind of innovation can be exported across the globe. Absolutely. We've we can got, make screenings yeah, from that. We, we've got a screening session tomorrow morning, and we're looking at a company that is disrupting the mining sector. And her first clients, you know, one of the biggest challenges yes. for any startup is how do you find your first client, are, are actually two giants yes. in the mining industry. In, indeed. And, and shall I mention another extra Australian example? This is a few years old now, but it's literally rocket science, and that is the Nulka decoy missile for naval ships. This is one of Australia's most successful defence exports. I wrote about it recently, but no one, no one's heard of it. No. Um, okay, you, you're in a warship. The, the cruise missile is coming in, skimming across the surface of the water, coming right at you. You yeah. have and you're moments. sending it to decoy to get it you, to blow a decoy, up. Right? All the other decoys send out a, a missile. It launches a, a package of electronics that, that does tricky things, but that package descends on a parachute, which means it drifts in the wind. Well, the the anti-ship missiles are smart enough now to realise if it's drifting in the wind, it's probably not a ship. Ignore that. Go on to the the real target. What the Nulka does, the rocket fires out, it then sits up on its tail and hovers on its steerable, variable-thrust, solid-fuel rocket engine. Just think that one through or talk to a rocket scientist to explain why why that is amazing. And it then hovers on its tail, tracking across the water in the zigzag pattern that a warship would. Now, that has been, it's been developed at the Australian Defence Science and Technology Organisation, which is equivalent to the US DARPA, Defence Advanced Research Project Agency, and it's successfully sold to both the US and Canadian militaries. Okay, so we actually do have defence startups, we have agricultural startups, we have normal run-of-the-mill marketplace tech startups, blah, 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 blah. What do we see going forward around, I mean, is this flavor of the month time or is this a more permanent change? And it's very early days. I mean, we're talking five weeks ago today that the decapitation happened. So, but what's the feeling here? I mean, I think we probably all want it to be true, but are we all sort of holding back going, yeah, maybe? <laughs> I think we're probably all biased as we work in the industry that we absolutely <laughs> yes. believe it to be true. Um And I think it has to be true for Australia to catapult itself into what is now a very globally competitive market in the 21st century. And we will be left behind if we don't embrace change and innovation. And I think the other area that we really haven't talked about is the increasing mainstreaming of for-profit, for-purpose startups, Mm. which are trying to solve real global challenges for which 
by the way, there is a huge market, hundreds of millions of people, and um, there's great financial returns there as well. And so um, I think leveraging technology from Australia to solve challenges across the globe. Are we going to see incubators or particular programs pop up to help identify and nurture those the entrepreneurs who would be solving those problems yeah defat have a they've invested in a 130 million dollar global innovation exchange oh, that's right this is the julian announced that last year right if yeah, I remember. in march yeah okay i do remember that it just sort of got drowned beneath all of the other stuff that was going on at the time well you know australia does know how to do logistics because we've got all these wide brown spaces across the country yeah so it, what was quite interesting was that Laura and I were both nominated participants in the Policy Hack event that happened in Sydney on Saturday. And part of the sort of new look approach of the government, and this was really very much one run by Wyatt Roy in conjunction with uh, Sebastian Eckersley-Maslin, who runs the Blue Chili Accelerator. It was an opportunity to basically get the folks in startup land together with some folks from government to start to really, you know, do that whole hackathon methodology, sit down, brainstorm, and really try to think collaboratively about finding unique solutions to that. And I actually, I had a, a fair deal of reservation going in because having done these things, particularly in corporate land, the outcomes can be so engineered, you know, that you're driven down a specific path that you're getting exactly the outcome that the executive who wanted. And and it wasn't like that. I was shocked. Well, this was actually one of my concerns too. So this is really where I need to pivot and talk to both of you because you were there. What were, what were your impressions, Laura? The, the 10 questions that teams formed around were very open and the makeup of certainly my team and my observation others as well were incredibly diverse. Mm. Um, and... <laughs> You know, of course, there's only so much you can achieve in five hours. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's the whole point of brainstorming, isn't it? You get something happened. But, but this wasn't just the usual startup crowd, I understand. We had people from Canberra, policy people. No, I mean, no, and what was fantastic is we had um, senior civil servants yeah. coming and saying to us, well, here's an angle that might work or no, that won't happen or here's how you can approach it or these are the things you need to make sure you've ticked off. Um, in in measuring the outcomes um, of you know of your project, so that was incredibly useful to have such a frank discussion. With I'm senior wondering, civil servants. therefore, when when a senior civil servant says that won't happen, and I'm imme- I'm immediately thinking, yes, minister, you know, blocking yeah. Yeah. your creativity. <laughs> but I, I'm seeing in your face that's not what was going on. You were learning stuff. So what were you learning from the policy people? I think we were learning a lot about. We were we were talking about linguistics earlier. Um, we were we're learning a, a lot about language mm. and also bringing people on the journey with us. You know the. The policy hack in itself was just so very different to how I imagine Canberra works day to day. And that would have been, I imagine, quite confronting for a number of staff there. But they wholeheartedly they seem embraced to be into it. it. And, yeah. um, you know, I think it's going to be the start of many. And this is, in terms of that, because Wyatt Roy came and joined our group, the winning group, I should add. But, we'll get to that, yes. Mark, yes. Um, Came in, and, and part of what he actually offered in feedback was, again, around this framing. He said, listen, you know, when you mandate, particularly because we had something that had to do with education, you have to get all the states on board. So mandating is a bad idea. Recommending is a great idea. In other words, you provide policy frameworks that allow the states to express themselves inside of an overall goal. 
And it's something that no one in the room had really thought about because we don't function in that framework. But he has to deal in the framework of Commonwealth state relations, of federation thinking. And it was actually really good. Even It was coming from the minister, but it was really good to have someone in the room who's thinking in terms of federation thinking. And I must say, it's, it's hearing that uh, reinforces my belief that people who criticise Wyatt Roy being a government minister, the youngest in Australia's history at age 25, I think such people are fools because the man is obviously intelligent. The man has achieved so much yeah. just by getting to where he is. You, you don't just kind of wander in because you've got a nice smile and become a minister. You really have to I, kind of prove your worth. I was not prepared. Politically, if not in, in policy sense. Yeah, I was not prepared to be as impressed as I was by the end of the weekend by him. He's absolutely being empowered to disrupt the framework. <laughs> oh, we got to ring the bell. Can you say synergy or hand yeah, around the gene you know, or whatever policies, it is we but, do. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't just Wyatt Roy there. There were a number of other MPs who came later on in the day. Yes. I know I spoke to David Coleman, who I sat on a startup board with three or four years ago. Um, and so, you know, there are other ministers within Cabinet um, and the broader government who really understand the space and are excited about My it. My impression... And I won't attribute any sources here. I'll just say what I've been hearing from people. My impression is that some of the techniques that are aligned with, not so much with the hackathon, but with the way that, say, a bank would work on putting a challenge out there to get some startups to solve the challenges, because they know that a startup can solve it more inexpensively than a bank can. It sounds like the federal government is going to be starting to front those kinds of things as well so that they can get effective, inexpensive solutions to deliver some policies. And when I heard that, I kind of did a double take because I, I, can, I can think of HSBC in those terms. I cannot think of Canberra in those terms. Doesn't this then run the risk of raising the anger of people whose whole careers are invested in the old way that we'll have a couple of months, a year, 18 months of, of Malcolmgasm or whatever we want to call it in this yeah. brave new future world and then suddenly the the counter-revolution will start building force because we've got to remember that even though Turnbull is now in the latest opinion poll starting to soar yeah. uh, above his predecessor and above the Labor op opposition, although I should say that this particular opinion poll bounces around. I, I, look, I'm going to short circuit you. I'm going to say something. Oh, I think Turnbull is the liberal Whitlam. I think he's pulling that party into a place that it doesn't know that it can go, and it might not actually get there. Okay, we are talking Gough Whitlam, who was Prime Minister in the 70s, a, crash a Labour a crash. Prime Minister after 26 years of Conservative government, and yeah. the change was too much, too soon, and he got the metaphorical bullet in the head as well. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm saying. But, you know, it feels like... He, Malcolm can take the party certain directions. There's certain things he can't touch because there's rusted on opinions there. He's taking the party in a bunch of directions and the government in a bunch of directions elsewhere. And it feels like he's doing it because they kind of don't know <laughs> what's going on. And he's going to get some distance, but I don't know if he's going to get all the way. He's like a rodeo rider who's kind of got onto a stegosaurus and pumped it full of stimulants. <laughs> and, now, and now he's got to steer it. To some sort of victory. I don't know where that image came from. <laughs> and on that But note, we have to remember that Malcolm Temple has been an incredibly successful businessman yes. and success breeds success and positivity leads to success. And he knows And I people. think the smart civil servants will ride with him. They'll go through that 
kind of I'm just gonna, period of uncomfortable I want one of my listeners, if you can actually like do up the image of Malcolm riding the Stegosaurus, please, because we will post it to the Tumblr. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We will be right back. Uh, this is Mark Pesci, and I just want to say a few words about Twister Sponsors Braintree, code for easy online payments. Now, developers around the world have used Braintree's V.0 SDK as a simple way to accept PayPal and credit cards and debit cards and really whatever payment system is coming next. With a single scalable integration, you get robust fraud protection on over 130 currencies around the world, making your global expansion a snap. Using Braintree is as easy as integrating a few lines of code, but don't take their word for it. Try out the sandbox and see for yourself at braintreepayments.com slash twista. Okay, folks, we're back with Laura McKenzie of Scale Investors and journalist Stilgarian. Next up, mm-hmm. everyone's favorite startup big company success story Atlassian has announced their IPO. I, I don't know. Laura, have you heard anything about the exact value of the company when it goes out to the market? Do we know anything about this? Well, obviously, they are using that kind of Jobs Act ruling and they've, you know, it's all been confidential in terms of their disclosure um, so far. Um, Wait, with Jobs Act ruling? Would it to, oh, so I think if you have revenue of less than a billion dollars, you can, you know, go through that pre-listing process on a confidential basis. Okay. So we have less visibility. So it's all hearsay and rumor. But less I'm sure than a the billion dollars, they are just useless in revenue. Right. Um, look, I, I haven't thought too much about the exact price they they might have. But what I will note is that Atlassian, apart from being the only startup that politicians seem to have heard of, apart mm. from Malcolm Turnbull, that's unfair. But that's broadly speaking the issue. I'm sick of hearing about Atlassian, you great guys, but that's enough. Um, they have, of course, got into that same place that George Westinghouse was back in the Industrial Revolution in the United States. Not being able when- to deal with Nikola Tesla? Uh, well, yeah, I'm sure Atlassian's policy on Nikola Tesla does need some work. Uh, but I think the, the issue there is that when the great railway building boom was happening in the United States and it raced ahead, and that was incredibly speculative, it's so much like the dot-com booms, both the first one and the one we're in now. And yes, I do think we're in a bubble. But the important thing was it didn't matter whether a railway company boomed or bust or whatever happened in the long term railways would be steadily growing in fits and spurts and maybe plateaus and maybe occasional drops. But George Westinghouse made their pneumatic brakes. Ah. And it didn't matter which railways were the successful ones or not, his brakes were not just useful, they were mandated as the essential safety equipment Right. And he had the patents. Right. So it all built out from there. Atlassian Are is you in the... saying that Jira is the safety equipment for websites? May all the gods help us. Uh-huh. I suppose it is. But it's tools for the job, right? I mean, if you made hammers, nails and, and yeah. bolts and screws and things for, for the industrial well, I mean, revolution. It's the old story about yeah. gold rushes everywhere. The people who sell a hammer and picks are the yeah. people who make money in a gold rush, not the gold miners. And that's exactly where Atlassian is. It's certainly well-respected and... 
I would imagine, brackets, this is not investment advice in brackets, that slow and steady growth from them is what we can expect. Well, they've been at it for, what is it, eight years now? Or is it 11? I forget exactly. Mm. It's a long time. Maybe it's 11. Yeah, I mean, I think they won the EY Entrepreneur of the Year, which was on on Thursday night back in the mid 2000s. Yeah, okay. So, so it's, it's some time ago. It's, when do we stop calling them a startup? Well, this is, I mean, when the politicians stop calling them a startup, I think still Gary and So we have to end. give them a new one to talk about. That's <laughs> the scale up, yeah. Yeah, there is. And there's <laughs> another scale up that I think has been the best kept secret in Australia for a long time, and it's slowly coming out. Mm-hmm. And that's Envato. You know, they employ more than 300 people in Melbourne. One of their, they're a marketplace, Theme Forest, I think. I think I've got nine different marketplaces. Theme Forest is the most popular. And one of their... Um, is this for WordPress themes? Yeah, all kinds of different okay. um, different backgrounds. Um, one of their, their key providers is turning over more than two and a half million. See, that again is the making the tools to do the yeah. job. Exactly. Uh, which it's allow sticky. other people to be successful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also global, presumably. It's sticky, right? it's global, and oh, just a plug for gender diversity. By the way, one of its co founders is a woman. One. Which brings us now to Canva, uh-huh. which has also now had an enormous investment of, I think, what, $15 million, which in Australian terms is an enormous investment on a post investment valuation of $165 million. And this is a company that's really just not much more than three years old. Yeah, that's right. Founded by Melanie and Cliff, originally yeah. out of WA. Bill Tye's been very influential with his Ozaps um, and startup kite surfing boot camp. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think this business is all around team and timing. Mm. And one of the things that Melanie and Cliff did very well was through their relationship with, I think, Lars Rasmussen, was they ended up bringing on board Guy Kowalski. Yeah. Um, Kawasaki. Kawasaki. And um, I'm thinking motorbikes here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and Cam he's, Adams. He's, he's, you know, brought a, a huge amount of value to yes. the business. Yeah. This tells me a couple of things. I mean, because I, I was, I must say, I was quite surprised to see Canva grow, not because what it was doing was a bad thing. I just thought, well, there's lots of other things happening that are going to do better. You know, the Facebooks of the world zooming up and all of that kind of thing. And to me, this this illustrates how important it is to get the global people connections happening. Mm. And for all that I find Guy Kawasaki annoying beyond belief, he does seem to know everyone and does seem to know he, how to well, sell he's stuff. He's been around since year dot. Yes. Right? He is the, the canonical first evangelist. Absolutely. And then when you get people like Lars involved who... People will know from well. That's that's really Google Maps, isn't it? That was yes. really the great creation. Correct. There's another great thing which was originally an Australian company. Yes, absolutely. Um, so there's all of this supporting stuff. This I, I'm really thinking this as we're we're recording now. It's Are like, we the infrastructure economy for the web? Is that where or for the for the information age? Is that what it's goes going on here? Is that what well? We're it's seeing? not such oh, a look, bad think, place to be. I, I think we can't jump ahead of the game. There are. A plethora of marketplaces for all kinds of yes. industries operating yes. through the web. And, you know, Australia happens to be the home of some of them. You know, if you think of 99designs, you think of Design Crowd, and now you think of Canva, you mm-hmm. think, well, are we the design capital of the world? Well, well or freelancer, are we? By the way, the... New York's pretty up there. Yeah. With freelancer, can you, you can say that about maybe about liquid labor markets. But now let me ask we're going to have this 
IPO sometime in the next couple of months. I don't know if anyone knows exactly when, but you know, sometime within. I next... think by the end of the year. Okay, so so within the next three months, ish, there'll be this enormous event, and there will suddenly be a lot of Sydney ciders, who were found not so much co-founders, but the first ring of employees at Atlassian, who will now be multimillionaires. I happen to know at least one of them, probably two, uh, as well as uh, Scott and Mike having a lot of money. Is that going to, that was one of the things that began a virtuous cycle of startup investing at the angel and seed level in San Francisco. Laura, is that likely to happen here? Are you seeing those people starting to enter your network? Absolutely. And we don't have to look as far afield as the US. If you think about New Zealand and, yeah. you know, the founders of Trade Me, yeah. you know, and, and increasingly it'll be the founders of Zero and, and initial employees of Zero. You know, the New Zealand innovation ecosystem has been much more vibrant than Australia in the last decade. But we've got a much bigger population. We've got a greater pool of talent. And so we can overtake them pretty damn quickly. And hopefully, now I'm supporting Australia in the rugby, we'll trance them in, in the rugby <laughs> and also in the startup scene in the future. But I think you're right. Once you have exit and you have a number of investors willing to go again and entrepreneurs who are willing and excited, excited about starting something again. That's where success breeds success. And we saw it happening in Melbourne. You know, we're sitting in Sydney here. Mm. A lot of the listening that the government has been doing has been in Sydney. But if we think about startups, in inverted commas, like Seek, like Car Sales, like CSL, like Star Pharma, actually they're all out of Melbourne. Yeah. This, to me, illustrates also how the timing of the Turnbull revolution could be very very helpful in all of this because with Atlassian's IPO people having money to invest, should should they choose to do so, um, we, we've seen a few examples before them, like, like Simon Hackett from Internode, who's invested heavily in the battery storage startup, whose name utterly escapes me at the moment. But that, that he's invested in Blue Chili, I think, as well. Yes, and 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 has his own little startup incubator set up in Adelaide yeah, called folks, uh, Bay Sixty Four, from memory. You know, one of the founders of Seek, I know, is invested in at least one of the VC funds that are running out. Well, SquarePeg, for example. Right there, you are. So we're seeing all of those examples for the next generation to be inspired by at the exact time we've we've made the nasty man from the past go away and the bright shiny man from the future comes in i, I i'm creating a cartoon version of this obviously but that that is really uh, what will be happening turnbull not turnbull not just uh uh, knows how to speak the language. I mean, he was, as he will happily tell you, a partner partner in Goldman Sachs in New York. He knows how <laughs> investors want to invest their money. Prime Minister Vampire Squid, anyone? <laughs> and and I think also... Oh, I've got an image in my face now. <laughs> the Australian government are really looking to what's happened in the UK over the last decade and just the absolute transformation um, of Silicon Roundabout and Tech City, and in particular the fintech base, but an incredible amount of angel investment that has gone into that market. And the key policy legislation there is something called the Enterprise Incentive Scheme or the Small Enter Enterprise Incentive Scheme, where essentially you can fully deduct what you've invested in a startup from your tax return that year. Whereas in Australia at the moment, you need to earn $100 to invest 50 And so I think once... That is legislative, which I'm, I, very supportive of, and hope will happen in the in that, next year. That came year. up in There'll policy the floodgate, didn't it? Absolutely. 
absolutely. And it was one of the um, teams that got the loudest cheer. Um, From the investors in the room, no doubt. Not, no, not, yeah. not just because it was Seb that was um, pitching that, it, yeah. that idea, but I think that that will be a massive change to the market. Well, we have so many people from uh, the British Digital Transformation Office here in Australia uh, setting up the Australian version of it. it. It's quite unashamedly a clone, I think, would be fair to say, or at least uh, heavily inspired by a true story, as the and filmmakers would say. if you think about say. jobs... You know, the first thing a, a startup does when they receive investment is employ someone, generally on the sales and marketing yeah. side, to help, you know, what is Growth a product hack. that's being developed actually get to market. And so, you know, the government's getting that money back in PAYG pretty quickly. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. <laughs> Hi, this is Mark Pesci. We'd normally have a bit of an ad here. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw over to Julian Marchand, who is going to talk about the Studentpreneur podcast. Thanks, Mark. Um, so, you, you know, for young entrepreneurs, there is only two options. It's either um, to wait until you graduate high school or university to start your business or to stop everything that, that you're doing um, to focus on your business. Well, we're working on a third option, which is continue your studies and start a business at the same time. The problem is there's a lack of support to do this. So we run a podcast called Studentpreneur Podcast, Studentpreneur in one word. And what we do is we share stories of young entrepreneurs who are running the business and doing their studies at university. They're leveraging facilities at the university. They're leveraging staff at universities. They're leveraging um, students. They're leveraging their student ID. All they need is a bit of support from the industry. So what we're asking is if you could share Studentpreneur podcast with the young entrepreneurial student around you. And hopefully they'll go and start a business. And where, were they able, are, where are they able to find the Studentpreneur podcast? So there is a studentpreneurpodcast.com. So studentpreneurpodcast.com. Or the Facebook page, Studentpreneur Podcast on Facebook. Thank you very much, Julian. Well, we're back at the new special with Laura McKenzie and Stilgarian. Now, let's talk about Blackbird Ventures, which is, uh, Laura, you're saying it's only, what, three or four years old now? Yeah, I think the first $25 million fund was raised in 2012. Okay, and so they now have raised a second fund with $200 million. $200 million, and really importantly, three quarters of that was from institutional investors which is a huge signal to the market. So are we talking about the fact that we've actually started to tap the vaunted superannuation funds that Bill Barty will always talk about how he wants to attack every time he gets in front of a microphone? <laughs> well, yes, the first time they've invested a meaningful amount of money, um, both with Brandon, which closed their $200 million fund earlier this year, four superannuation funds each putting in $50 million, and then Blackbird, right. similar size, since 2007. So, you know, that is a huge coup. What does this mean about the risk profile that the startup community is being seen in with respect to these relatively conservative funds? Is it because the rate of returns everywhere else has gone downhill and they have to go here? Or is it that they're now feeling more comfortable? Or is it both? Well, I think there's two stories. You know, the last large funds were raised in 2007, and we all know what happened 
the next day. Yeah. Um, you know, the GFC made it really hard for entrepreneurs to find customers who are willing to pay and to find future investors. So, you know, the growth trajectory of startups that were funded in that area has been much slower globally, not just in Australia. Um, and and so I think the institutional investors shied away right. in part because returns were slower coming. Um, and of course, they're all, you know, all about that longer term liquidity. Um, and until they got the returns, it was hard for them to conv- be convinced to go back. Now, Brandon have just had two game-changing exits, you know, multiple hundreds of million dollar exits in Fibrotex and Spinifex. And I think that really encouraged institutional investors to come back into the, the market. Um, and of course, these institutional investors are so large now right. that they don't get out of bed for less than $100 million <laughs> generally. <laughs> So oh God. that is an image right there. Imagine how only... much the outcalls would cost. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so they're not only looking to invest in the funds, but they're also looking to do the follow-ons here in Australia rather than having, you know, US funds come in like they did a, with Campaign Monitor and Atlassian. Right. And... Well, Campaign Monitor was what, a $200 million investment, roughly two two seventy five is the number that's sticking in my yeah, head. Yeah, I think so. Um, which is huge, but we're now actually talking that a super fund may be able to step up they're and go, sure. They're looking for co-investment rights in any fund that they're in now because they've got so much money to put to work. And if you think about it, you know, all the traditional asset classes, you know, yeah. fixed income, Australian equities and Australian property yeah. are just looking woeful over the next few years. So actually alternative starts to become more attractive if you can put enough money to work. So I don't have so much a comment on this, Laura, but a question for you, because I saw the the news story about Blackbird said they were looking for, quote, dramatically ambitious things to invest in. What does that actually mean in terms of a fund of this size? Look, you'll have to ask Ask Nikki and Rick, but my, my understanding is they are really looking for unicorns. Mm. Now, I would say within scale, we're generally seeking businesses that we believe can generate a five to ten times return over three to five years. I would say they're looking for, you know, much greater returns, kind of the, the, the go big or go home philosophy. During the first dot-com boom, a venture capital advisor was chatting with me about a couple of projects that me and a few people had in the pipeline. And, of course, like most such projects, nothing ever happened with it. But he explained this whole process to me in terms of, you know, these are evil people, that they really don't care what you're doing as long as you can show them a graph that goes up and to the right with the exact trajectory so that it goes through a certain window three years down the track and that that certain numbers look right on the spreadsheet. And apart from that, they don't really care whether you're selling cracked children or landmines to Syria or whatever it might be. <laughs> Do we have that same Look, problem I, in the current dot-com no, world? Obviously, I think you're doing a huge disservice to the investment community. Most of the um, venture investors now have been really successful entrepreneurs in the past. So one of my colleagues when I was at Starfish, Tony Glenning, sold his business to Google ran the Google Docs teams for a few years and has come back almost with an altruistic mind of now I want to make a difference to the Australian economy. And I think a lot of the venture capital investors have that viewpoint. Melissa Widner, for example, at One Tree, uh, sorry, at um, One Ventures. This is probably the difference. The first generation were literally the investment bankers, the vampire squids. This is my question. And this new generation are, in fact, these. And this is what 
you know, to tie this back in, what will make the Atlassian IPO interesting as well, because you're going to be increasing the number of people who will want to be looking at the next thing and will have the experience to be able to do it without selling crack to babies. Is the Prime Minister still a vampire squid, do you think, at, at heart? <laughs> he was an entrepreneur as well as an investment banker, I remember. And a philanthropist now, he will tell us. So. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, which which Turnbull is the real Malcolm Turnbull? I, I think we're probably going to be asking that question for a while. Everything's real, Mark, in this multiverse. All right, so here's another thing, and... I think we're probably going to have someone on the ASX later on in the show, but reverse listings are now becoming, I mean, they've always been a thing, but they're becoming a thing. So a reverse listing is you buy a small company that's already ASX listed and you use that to be able to issue stocks so that you can actually get capital without having to go to a venture capitalist. Now, how, Laura, how common are these? (laughs) Um, You may have seen um, Mike Cannonbrooks's views on reverse listings, which I share. Um, Historically, those companies that I have seen listing, I know have gone to the venture capital community and and maybe individuals and have been knocked back. Uh. And so, you know, it's a terrible shame that retail investors are really, you know, suffering that pain um, for really very illiquid um, investments because they're often some way away from revenue. Um, however, you know, I think always have an open mind and I'm a pessimist, uh, sorry, a pragmatic optimist. Um, things could change. And I think um, the introduction of equity crowdfunding will right. just raise awareness right. amongst retail investors. Well, equity crowdfunding, of course, is the other way where you don't actually need to list. And so therefore you wouldn't you wouldn't have the same strictures around auditing and reporting. That... Ah, well, watch that space. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, we, we still don't really know what we that don't. legislation will look like. I'm staying quiet on this one because this is all black magic for me. Well, well but it's it, but it is interesting because it, it's it's at one level it, it can look as Laura says almost like a stock market manipulation, right? That you have a dog that you can't get funded through normal VC channels, so therefore you go out and you buy a company and you use that shell essentially to sell stock to an unsuspecting public that doesn't really understand that this dog only has three legs. Well, certainly during the mining boom in Australia, not the current or the one that's just ending, but the one in the 1960s, that was exactly the sort of thing that was happening. And yeah, we called it corruption back then. (laughs) You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and I just want to say a few words about Twista sponsor Getworm. Startups need to attract early adopters before they reach out to a larger crowd. Getworm is the place where startups and early adopters converge. It's the platform where startups can incentivize early adoption through the creation of perks, rewards for being part of that all-important first group of users. Now, if, like me, you're the kind of person who likes to try new things, then sign up as an early adopter on Getworm and maintain your leading-edge cred while getting some great perks from the latest startups. The early bird gets the worm at getworm.com. Okay, it's Mark. This week in Startups Australia, the home stretch with Laura McKenzie and Stilgarian. Let's talk diversity. Now, one of the other folks that was... <laughs> in a room with two men and one woman. Good start, Mark. Uh, it illustrates the problem. It illustrates yes. the problem. And, and we're all white and we're one, all middle class wow. and we're all... 
while, speaking English. While we were waiting to go in at Policy Hack, Nicole Williamson, who's another friend, wandered up and said, Hello, Mark. I guess I should tell you I've been auditing your broadcast. Really? I said. So on series one and two, she counted and she said, You were about 21% of your guests were women. She said, It's not great. It's not horrible, but it's not great. And I've now audited myself on this third series and partially. You, Laura, we are now at 30%, which is better, needs to be better still. Now, a recent survey that I'll link to on the Tumblr showed that as far as senior leadership in venture capital is is concerned, there's really only about 8% of those people, at least in America, are women, senior leadership, 1% are black. And I get the impression those numbers probably aren't terribly different here. Do you think they're better, worse here? Well, let's just talk to the majority issue. Women are 51% of the population, so really that number should be 51% for women. Um, In a survey done in 2012 here, 4% of angel investors were women. There are some fantastic women in the venture space, but I would say we are still in that. Four to five percent of the overall investment market. So really, worse than the United States mm, is. It is but, worse than the uh, US. And we certainly see across the the information technology sector in Australia normally it's it's a bloke fest. Yeah. Well, it was interesting because I went to an event last week. Uh, the CIO of the ASX is a woman now. Mm. She just got in the role a couple of months ago, and but she was quite candid and commenting. She said, "Listen, I've almost always had male peers, and that's just the way I had to settle it." To, to work this career. And it's certainly what we're trying to change at scale. We've got about 80 investors now um, who are mainly women. I think we have about 12 scale males um, who don't want to miss out on, oppor- on an opportunity. But most of our investors are women. And so actually because of that, maybe that number is closer to 10% in Australia now. Mm. It was about 4 or 5% in the US a decade ago. And actually I think certainly amongst the angel investment community, it's about 20% now in the US, probably about... 8 to 10% in the venture community. But one of the reasons there is a lot of the top-tier female VCs have left the traditional firms to go and do their own thing. So a great example would be uh, Jem Fonstead and Teresa Gao, who recently set up Aspect Ventures. And, you know, they were at DFJ and Excel. Um, and so I think women are stepping out of the traditional VC roles. Anyway, we're, we're trying to change that ratio here. It doesn't surprise me that women are having to step out of those traditional companies, though, right? Because, I mean, always, always these things come down to organisational culture, Mm. and that is really tough to change. And it's something, uh, you know, I cover a lot of information security stuff, which is, again, a very male space. And constantly you keep hearing that the problems are never technological even with solving things. It always comes down to organisational culture. So let's talk about that. Laura, you were part of a team at Policy Hack that actually took this issue on head on. So could you tell us sort of what your pitch was? What did you come up with? Yes, we really looked at a at a triangle, really. So at the bottom of the triangle, one of the things we need is data. Mm, that's um, right, because there's no ABS stats on any of this, right? Exactly. So ABS stats on female entrepreneurs, ABS stats on female investors. You, you can't measure it, you can't fix it. Exactly. The other thing which we thought of was what about some blind procurement policies within government so you can't see the name of people pitching to you? Right, and this is 
Now, I'm if we could do that, that in venture, exist. that would be that would be great. But it it doesn't exist. I know but it, it doesn't. would be relatively easy. Yeah. You know, those of us with any kind of technology background know that could be quite easily done. Um, we also put forward a proposal for everyone in, in certainly all MPs to do unconscious bias training um and so really it's about I want changing to be a fly on that the wall. language um so that was really the the bottom of the period is, is around data collection and then there's kind of this middle section which really is a public private partnership which is around facilitating um the creation of new businesses and encouraging innovation within large companies um, and I'm recognising that both parties have a part to, part to play. And then at the top of the pyramid, you know, one of the things that has been incredibly successful at the ASX level um, is the Male Champions of Change initiative that Elizabeth Broderick has run. And that's now been rolled out with the Property Council. Wouldn't it be fantastic to have our own charter in the early stage investing space for male champions of change. Um, Those programs really do work because, uh, again, I noticed that the the secretary in the prime minister's office, or is it Department of Prime Minister Cabinet, one of the two, but the person who is in charge of cyber policy uh, for the prime minister is a woman and she's, a, she's well respected in the field. And yet she indeed had to spend some of her time at the conference in her speech doing the whole, we need more women, blah, blah, blah pitch. Mm. And it would be really nice if women didn't have to spend so much of their time in those senior roles just being a capital W woman and doing that role and drumming up support, yeah. but it could actually get on with their jobs. And particularly in our industry, you know, the panel pledge, how many mm. SID starts and other conferences have you been to mm -hmm. where there's no women on the panel? Yeah. Um, also, um, you know, one of the questions that anyone will be thinking when a female entrepreneur comes to pitch is, oh, is she going to have a baby? What are we going to do? Well, actually, it's probably the wisest idea to have a business starting when you're at that stage of life because you're having to um, put lots of systems and processes in place so that you're working on your business rather than in your business. So it's probably a blessing in disguise. Mothers do know how to do this stuff, yes. It, 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 exactly. But it shouldn't be a question mm. on someone's mind, and that's talk to the unconscious bias. Um, side of things so that was another thing we pitched and then the third thing that we pitched really at the apex of this triangle and it's no surprise that this is what I'm trying to do at scale anyway is to launch a co-investment fund where not just scale who yeah. are focused on female founders but any any investor in Australia that invests in a female founded business maybe they own at least 25% equity the woman gets a co-investment amount from the government up to up to five million dollars. So we're re this is a little bit around having targets and quotas, mm. um, which I'm wholeheartedly in support of, um, in the startup space. Yeah. Um, you know, I already have a lot of my male um, colleagues approaching me because they want to have women on the boards of their startups, and so they're inviting us to invest, or they want to see our deal flow because they realise they might have missed out on things because. They realise ninety five percent of the companies they see are founded by men. So, um, to if you like, put a rocket <laughs> up, um, up 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 everyone in the community to really make a change happen. Have that carrot of you know, if you invest a couple of million dollars in a company founded by a woman, well, 
the government will match so, that. So, so that's the that's the proposal in that list that will actually end up costing the government money. Do we know sort of? How, I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, we're looking at money coming in from the high net wealth individual visas going into innovation. Why not take some of that and say, here, this is how it has to go, right? Because then you're really doing two things at once. There's, I'm just wondering if there's going to be a way to be able to champion that policy all the way through. I mean, do you think Wyatt will get behind it or Malcolm or, you know, how do, how do we make that happen? Well, um, what is fantastic is the team from the Digital Transformation Office in the UK are now in Australia. And who's leading the world on this co-investment policy? The UK. David Cameron set up a £50 million fund. They spent that, which operated on this terms. They spent that. He put in another £50 million. Boris Johnson thought, hey, I want something for London in particular. So he put in another £25 million. And so... You know, there's precedent in other countries, in Singapore and in New Zealand for this working. But I think our legislation and our psyche most closely matches the UK mm. economy. And so really it's just as the SEIS scheme is, it's a pick up and put down um, policy. And, you know, 100 million really is around the size of that first angel co-fund in the UK. So it's a number that seems to make sense to me. All right, final note, there's the female founder meetups that are happening in in Victoria now, through Start of Victoria. Have you been to those? And are they doing a good thing around uh, bringing women together to, to, to support themselves around diversity stuff or anything? Yeah, look, there's some great initiatives happening in lots of places. So we're at Fishburners now, you know, 25% of people here are, are women. Yeah. So Murray's done some great work yeah. on that. Seb's doing some excellent work at Blue Chili. I've just come from Stone and Chalk and Alex has got some initiatives around females in fintech there. Um, Startup Victoria have a fantastic course they've designed for female founders to get them from that stage of want to be entrepreneurs to you know, really understanding the funding cycle and the lean startup and the product cycle and, and equipping them with a group of mentors around them. And a couple of um, scale angel investors have been heavily involved in, in that, Wendy Kosica and Lisa Hennessy. I haven't at this stage. All right, so we're going to give you the last word. If you had a uh, magic wand for diversity, what would you be doing policy-wise? <laughs> Can you say shoot all the white young males? No, you can't. Can no, you, you can't. I would start actively encouraging startup events to happen outside the centre of our two biggest cities. I would start to get out into the suburbs and the regional centres. I mean, I hear that in Ballarat, which is only an hour on the train from Melbourne, yep. there's a thriving tech community there because it's an hour by train into Melbourne if they need to get into the city for a meeting. And Ballarat's and, lovely. Yeah. yeah. And and we've got plenty of lovely places around the the, the place. Uh, and really to kick that off, I would uh, revert back to something closer to the original National Broadband Network plan. Obviously, there are problems achieving that because we've found that uh, construction issues are really the issue there, not technology. And mm. yeah, we really should have given that to a construction company in the first place because building that network's about people with trench diggers and trucks and stuff. Okay, we stuffed that up. And we're stuffing it up a second time by the look of it. Let's have a third go at that. All right. So fix the NBN and that will actually start to because it broadens 
uh, broadens things. It can actually start to be another remediation for diversity. Yeah, I, I don't have any magic answer to the NBN, and I don't think that you know magically saying turn everything to fibre is the answer either. We, we live in the real world here, and we have to balance resources against what's possible. Um, a, a, little, a little less political rhetoric and a little more getting into the truck and going out digging trenches would help. Well, I mean, and that may very well be where we are. The political rhetoric has turned to innovation and opportunity. Well, and, and one of the big uh, problems that was uh, stifling NBN growth was the labour shortage because the mining boom sucked up all of the tradespeople. Well, that's coming to an end now, so... Uh, Can I end on a positive note with the NBN? I thought that was positive. Oh. Bird's Nest is a fantastic startup employing most people in Coomba, in ah. rural ah. ACT, and 94% of their revenue comes from the web. Just think about Excellent that. Work. One shot, but most of it online. Yeah. Laura McKenzie, Stilgarian, thank you both very much for being very active and wonderful participants on this new special on This Week in Startups Australia. Pleasure, Mark. If you want to see photos of our guests, if you want to see some links to many of the articles that we've talked about in the new special, drop by our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. You'll also find some behind-the-scenes photos. You'll find links to other things. You'll find some documents. It's all up there. Check it out at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Big thanks to sponsors Braintree and Getworm. Their support makes this podcast possible. Thanks to Felix Warmoth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that is consistently a joy to listen to. Thanks to Laura McKenzie and Stilgarian once again for making time to come on our show. We will be back in a fortnight with a special episode that takes us back to the land and into the future. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.